The following audio is from The Grove Church. For more information about the church or to listen to previous sermons, visit our website at grove.church. Good morning. Come on, good morning. Welcome to Vision Sunday today. Um, I want to encourage you to help me preach this message because feedback always helps me feel a little better. But uh, anyway, today is Vision Sunday, and some of you guys go, well, what is that about? What does that mean? You know, shouldn't there be vision all the time? I'm sure the answer to that's yes, but um, because we have so many uh, services, but also because there's individuals that are relatively new or newer to the church, maybe you're not aware of kind of this journey that we've been on, as well as kind of where we're at today and where we're going. So like maybe you've come in the last six months and the North Wing has been under construction like that whole time and it's like, well, what's that about? Or, you know, um, you see the, the generators in the parking lot and just different stuff. Um, and so I want to share with you kind of where we're at, but also where we're going, because we want everybody to be on the same page, that if you're here today and you consider Grove Church your home, um, man, we want to move forward together. We think it's important that we all are on the same page, that there is buy-in, and that we all are um, heading in the same direction. Vision is simply this, a mental picture of a preferred future, and something that we as a team have been praying about and, and thinking about and talking about for a long time, and things that we've presented that we want to give you some updates on. So we're going to give you some updates and cast some vision. But um, we're going to be in the book of Esther today. If you got a Bible with you or smartphone with a Bible app, you can look that up. But Esther is before um, Psalms and Proverbs and Job. So if you take a left from there, you'll land um, in Esther. So about probably a third, maybe halfway through uh, the actual pages of your Bible, you can turn uh, to Esther. Chapter 1 is where we're going to land, and and I'll read that here in a moment. But I want to pray, and I would encourage you to pray with me. So can we pray in agreement right now? Is that okay? Yeah, you're not helping me. I said, I need you to help me today. So anyway, Father, today we pray for the work of your spirit in all of us. That God, we surrender to you. There are new people here, people just checking things out today. And I'm glad they're here too. But God, for many of us, Lord, just thinking about this journey that we've been on and where we're headed and what you would do, that Father, we surrender to you all that we are, not just as a church, but God, as individuals, God, our families, God, the kids that you've stewarded to many of us, God, the marriages that we have, or Father, whatever it may be, that God, we want to surrender to you, wanting your plan, wanting your vision, wanting your future. So we thank you for it today. Moving all of us in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 Awesome. Well, starting in chapter one of the book of Esther, this is what happened during the time of King of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were all present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. In the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. I don't want to hear an amen on that one. Okay. Uh, For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. 
Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when, the, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and I'll let you take care of those names, to bring, the queen, uh, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal, royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. The opening of the book of Esther obviously doesn't mention Esther at all. It opens with this king, and what you see of this king is is really opulence, is him wanting to demonstrate his greatness. Can you imagine being invited to a party that was given for 180 days from now until, what, May 12th of next year? Just one big, long party? You know, like, like it says, um, displaying the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And then when that party's over, just in the citadel of Susa here, the smaller village area, he threw another party for seven more days, and it gives a description of all that was going on at that party and all that they drank and all of this stuff that you see. And then at the point that on the last day of this kind of private party, not that it's very small, this party, he decides, hey, not only do I have all this and am I amazing, but you should check out my wife. I mean, literally, this is what's going on. So he has her, hey, want to send her and have her wear a crown and let everybody look at how amazing and beautiful my wife is. And she refuses to come and he gets really, really frustrated. Now, I'm going to go through this whole book, not by reading it, but I'm going to kind of tell you the story and there's some things I'm going to skip over. But Xerxes' driving goal was to demonstrate how great he is. The contrast in the book of Esther, the contrast to Xerxes' is the person of Esther. And so we'll get to that in a moment. Xerxes is so frustrated that he gathers together his advisors once again and says, what am I supposed to do? She, she refuses to obey my command. And they say, hey, if you want to make sure that everybody respects you, everybody thinks you're so amazing, then make an edict that says you'll never see her again and you're done with her and banish her from your presence. That'll show everybody how amazing you are. And by the way, they throw a little note in there and that, that men should, you know, their women should serve them like that. It's kind of a mess here. And, um, and so he decides that's what I'm gonna do. At one point, a little while later, he wants a, a new queen to come and, and, and hang out with him. And so there's a search all through the land and they gather in all the whatever pretty women or whatever and, and there's a whole bunch and they go through you know they're eating the right diet and, and all these you know perfumes and makeups and potions and whatever else um, almost like essential oils but anyway so but um how's a freebie but uh so so but what happens is Esther is one of the the young ladies that was chosen now Esther is, is a Hebrew. She, she's from Jewish descent, but that's a secret at this point. So she ends up in this group of ladies, and she's shown favor, and everybody marvels at how she carries herself and how pretty she is and all this stuff. Well, long story short, um, she becomes queen. Now, she has an older cousin who's really more like an uncle or a father figure to her. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai serves as an official in Xerxes' court underneath a guy named 
Haman. So follow along with me. Now, at one point, Mordecai uncovers a plot for the king to be assassinated. The, the plot is thwarted because of what he does, and, and he's never uh, rewarded for that happening. Haman, this high, official that's higher than Mordecai, is frustrated with Mordecai because Mordecai, being, being of Hebrew descent, refuses to bow and show Haman honor. It's against what he believes. So Haman is frustrated with this guy. And, and I'm going to keep this as short as I can. He gets so frustrated that, that he finds out what type of person he is, where he's from, what his background is, learns that he also is a Hebrew, and says, it's not enough for me to have Mordecai taken out. I want all of his people taken out because there's this respect issue with all of them. That's what, what comes. So he goes before the king and says, I would love to have permission to, to have this group of people that refuses to respect authority. I want them taken out. Now, Xerxes, being so hungry for his own, his power, making sure that people respect him, he's like, absolutely, you need to do that because we're not going to deal with this in my kingdom. Well, obviously, Esther is also a Hebrew. The word goes out. This edict is, is, is uh, approved. The, the word goes out, and the date is given 11 months later that they're planning to have this whole people group annihilated, and Esther is one of these people. Mordecai begins to pray to God, what are we supposed to do? How are we going to deal with this? And he goes to Esther, and, you, know, the, the old, you know, the younger cousin, and says, Esther, you need to take care. You need to go before the king. And here's Esther's response in chapter 4. All the king's officials and the people of the royal promise, uh, provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. And then she says, but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She's saying, look, if I do this, I could die. Mordecai, you understand that I could die. I, I can't just go and do this. And by the way, he hasn't wanted to see me for 30 days. Why would he want to see me now? When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, chapter 4, verse 13, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, all right, go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Xerxes, who's all about his own, all about people understanding how amazing he is, is so focused on himself, and yet here's Esther, who understands from her older cousin Mordecai, if you don't take this action, you're not going to be spared, but here's the deal, you need to do this for all of your people. And she says, fine, I want you to fast for three days, and I'll go and do it. Long story short, Esther goes before the king, says, you know, O king, you know, here I am, and he extends the gold scepter. You can imagine how nervous she was. Basically, the extension of the scepter is you, you can be spared. What can I do for you? And she says, you know what? I would like to have a meal for you, and I want you to bring Haman. Remember, it was Haman who put this edict together for the king to approve. So Haman thinks, great, I'm being invited to a, to a meal with the king and queen. How awesome am I? She has no idea, he has no idea what's about to happen. 
So the next day comes around and they have this meal and the king says, you, you wanted to meet with me, you want to talk about something, Haman's here, what do you want to talk about? And you can imagine she's nervous and she says, tell you what, um, let's have a meal again tomorrow. And, and so she does, and again, I'm going to keep this as short as I can. Um, Haman at this point is excited about what's going on, thinks things are amazing, sees Mordecai, gets really upset that he's not re- paying him honor on his way out of this meal, goes back home. He has a pole set up to impale Mordecai on. He's excited about this, bitter at Mordecai. The next day, Esther finally meets with the king and Haman and says, my people are about to be annihilated. There was an edict that went out that approved this, and it was Haman who put it together. And the king, in a rage, because he he does like his queen, Esther, the king, in a rage, decides to have Haman impaled on the pole. The edict is reversed, and Esther and Mordecai save their people. I'm keeping that really short, and there's a lot more to the story. If you read it, it's, I think, about 10, 12 chapters. It's it's a great um, story in in history. But the Jewish festival of Purim was established because of this. They had cast lots, which were the pure, the Purim, uh, and established this festival. Well, Esther and Mordecai are respected today and forever in, in Jewish history because they lived beyond themselves. Now, I say that because, like I said, this is a contrast between Xerxes and, and Esther, and this idea that they have a meaning and purpose that is beyond themselves. And I want to talk about this because I love when Mordecai says to Esther for such a time as this. And I feel like as a church together that we exist for such a time as this, that we've talked for a long time about the 117,000 people within a five-mile radius of right here that don't yet know Jesus, that aren't a part of a church, that probably are not followers of Christ, and that we don't live for them, that we exist for such a time as this to make a difference in lives, that we want people to see Jesus Christ, to see how awesome he is, to see what he's done for them, to realize how much God loves them, so much so that he sent Jesus to the cross to pay for all they had done wrong so they could be united to their heavenly Father dealing with the issue of sin in their lives. Is anybody as excited as I am about the fact that our sin has been dealt with. Now, it's not enough that we just receive it. And and I love how Pastor Andy Stanley says this, those who devote themselves to themselves will only have themselves to show for themselves. Think about it for a minute. Those who devote themselves to themselves will only have themselves to show for themselves. We live in a world where where self-indulgence is the order of the day. You talk about Xerxes and and his power and and all that he he learned to live for and how he was pleased with his own culture, that the measure of his success was a demand for respect and power and living for opulence and decadence. I was walking through Safeway the other day picking up a couple of things and I was standing in line, they always have the magazines. I looked over and and I saw a picture and it was the Time Magazine Commemorative Edition. And you know who was on it? Hugh Hefner. Now some of you guys don't know who that is and that's probably a good thing. Others do know who that is and I won't even get into that right now. Hugh Hefner was the, the, the king of the Playboy Empire. And the Playboy Mansion and Playboy Bunnies and play, 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 play. And yet it was the commemorative edition of Time Magazine. Do you know what commemorate means? That we recall with respect and we celebrate them. What what are we celebrating as a society when when there's a magazine entirely dedicated to whatever he's done? What, What has he done? The exploitation of women for personal pleasure? The pornography industry advancing 
far more now than it ever has been? Struggling marriages? An absurd standard for wives that could never live up to it? Let's be honest. Confused singles? Let's celebrate that. Let's commemorate that. What a strange world where we call evil good and good evil. And yet I would tell you, for all of us as as a church together, let's live for something far better than our own indulgence. Let's live for something better than opulence. Let's live for something far greater than our own pleasure. Isn't there more to life than that? And so for you and me, man, we need to call, we need to be called to a life of meaning. Something more meaningful than what we can squeeze out of it because we're somehow successful. But there's a catch to the conversation about meaning. Meaning means a means to an end. And yes, I said that right. Meaning. To live a life of meaning means it's a means to an end. That you and I are not the end in ourselves. That the Grove Church is not the end in itself. That that for you and I, the end isn't us. I can't have meaning as long as it's always about me. I can't have a meaningful life until I'm willing to become a means. The Bible says that you and I are simply vessels. We're simply tools in the hands of God. And some of you guys go, I've been called a tool before. It's biblical. (laughs) Did he seriously just say that? Yep, I did. But here's the deal. You and I are simply a means to Jesus Christ. You and I are meant to shine the light of Jesus, to hold the glory of God, but the glory is not ours. The glory is in Jesus Christ. That when people see you exist in the apartment complex you live in, in the neighborhood that you're a part of, in the workplace that you go to, in the grocery stores that you shop at, in the malls that you visit, in the parks you take your kids to, in the streets that you drive on, that people can see the glory and the love of God emanating from you. That that's the end. That people see Jesus Christ through us. It's not us. Wow, you're amazing. Wow, you're incredible. Wow, how do you do it? Wow, I want to be like you. It's Jesus that lives in me. It's Christ that exists inside of me. That's our response to a world that somehow thinks it's us. It's not us. It's Christ in us. That's where he enters the picture. We are the means to others surrendering to him. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one who died for us. Jesus is the one who is the king. He is the hope. He is our eternity. See, we talk about as a church our code pretty frequently. And and here's just some of them. A couple weeks ago, I gave a, a pop quiz to our staff because I want them all to have it memorized. I do. And I would love for you to take on that same challenge, although more important would be to memorize Scripture. Our code says this, we are serious about the saving work of Jesus Christ. We know the methods will change, but the message never will. We will teach, preach, live, and serve in ways that anyone can understand. We want everyone to know and grow in Christ. We will have Christ-centered character. We believe integrity is everything. Without it, nothing else matters. We are filled with passion. You picked up on that yet? We are filled with passion. We will never insult God with small faith and minimal excitement. We will lead the way with irrational generosity. We believe it's more blessed to give than to receive. We give up things we love for things we love even more. The church does not exist for us. 
We are the church and we exist for the world. See, we put these together and some of them we rob from some other church. But here's the deal. The whole point is it's not about us. It's about these these statements that aren't just sentences. This is how we're called to live so that others will know Jesus Christ. We will always be about something other than our own happiness, comfort, and pleasure. Let me say that again. We will always be about something other than our own happiness, comfort, and pleasure. Here's what this means. Practically, it means this. You don't have your own seat in church. Nobody sat in your seat. You're in my seat. I've heard that in a long time. You don't have your own seat. If you want your own seat, I will have a seat embroidered and will mail it to you for your house because you don't get your own seat here. You don't have your own parking spot. Somebody parked in my spot. That's my spot. How dare they get in my spot? We don't have that around here. Do you know that every Monday when we meet for staff, I sit in a different seat every week? Because I'm trying to make sure our staff understands we don't have our own spots. My office is multi-use, and sometimes I don't like it, but that's the way it is because we don't have the space we need. Because it's not just mine. It's something that is used as a tool for others to gather and do whatever needs to be done. It also means this. We can't afford to look through the lens of what's in it for me. This church is not about what's in it for me. Years ago, I met with some leaders that were part of this church that that met with me and another board member that began to explain all that they wanted and all that they thought was right, all that we should be doing for them. With the reminder in this meeting, there's a lot of pretty big givers in here. Oh, oh, really? What am I supposed to say to that? I'll dance to your tune? The church does not exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. I get nervous, and I understand this. I get nervous when people show up, and they go, well, we were part of that, but I wasn't getting fed. I get nervous, and if you've ever said that, this isn't to condemn you, but I want to warn you, just like a small child, that if you're a newborn in Christ, you're a babe in Christ, if you're a year, two, three years into this Jesus thing, we'll feed you all day long. But there comes a point, just like a child, where you got to take that spoon and put it to your own mouth. And you've got to learn to feed yourself. And that this isn't about you getting fed. At some point as a follower of Christ, you can read the Bible. As a follower of Christ, we're trying to teach you in our last series to pray. That we gather in in life groups so that we can have conversations about messages like this. So that you can leave a life group having gathered with 8 or 10 or 12 or 14 people. Talking through the message. Walking out of that space, somebody's house committing to, we're going to memorize a verse. Or for the next seven days, here's something I'm going to do a little different than I've been doing it. It's that discipleship arm that says, here's how I can apply what's going on so that I can become more like Jesus. That is our primary form of discipleship. We must learn to feed ourselves and use that nourishment to help others find real spiritual food in Christ who is the bread of life. I believe maturity means that our hearts grow larger for the lost, more gracious towards one another, that we care about the unsaved or the jaded or those not yet connected to Christ's love, not more critical of what we don't like about church or the pastor or the experience. See, I love that Jordan mentioned this, and I'm going to try to get through this pretty briefly. I love that Jordan mentioned Matthew 18, but if you're taking notes, write down Luke 15. 
And I'm going to explain this because I don't have time to get into all of it. Luke 15, the entire chapter is dedicated to Jesus' passion for the lost. And so he talks about, as Jordan did, that the, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. The, the, the next story is a woman who loses a, a coin or something valuable and she searches like crazy. And then when she finds it, she has a party because the coin is found. And both of those examples, it talks about how I'm just going to read the, the, the one phrase, Luke, Luke 15. Um, I tell you, verse 7, in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to. See, it's easy to go, well, come on, what about us? What about some of us that have been here for a while? Shouldn't we be getting something out of this? And the simple answer is, here's what you should be getting out of it. Your passion to invest in people that don't get it yet. That's it. And nobody's amending that one. Dear Lord, help us. And then finally, the parable of the prodigal son. How many have heard this one before? Raise your hands high. The prodigal son story. Raise your hands high. Come on. Okay, most of you have heard this story before. If not, read Luke 15. The story is a son, the younger son. There's two sons. The younger one gets an inheritance and takes it while his dad's still alive and, and goes and, and, and squanders it all. And then he suffers and he, and he comes back and is like, I'm so sorry, dad. And the, the, the dad runs out after he sees him coming along, runs out and embraces him. And he throws a giant party. But here's the catch. Sometimes we suffer from OBS. You're like, what? Not IBS. If that's you, there's clinics you can visit. That's fine. Older brother syndrome. Because the older brother was like, well, wait a minute. What about me? What about what I get? He left. He's gone. He didn't care. He comes back and you throw a party? And the father says, everything that I have is yours. But he was lost and now he's found. Don't you care about that? What Jesus is saying to you and to me today is that we can't focus on what's in it for us. You know what's in it for us? That someday in eternity, there's going to be a grand party and a celebration, and, and you get to see some of the difference you made here on earth. But here on earth, no, no, we're in the trenches all the time wanting to help people that don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. That's it. And so for us, we've experienced great years. And as a Grove Church, I've been doing this for almost nine years now in this role. This church has been around for 85 years in the community, and we're proud of that, but it's pretty awesome to know that, yes, we've grown. Yes, we've seen more people connected. Yes, we've had greater influence through things like iHeart or Fight Hunger or the Toy Store during Christmas with the, with the city, the Recovery Committee, the Grove Kids Carnival, all kinds of ways that our influence has expanded. People that I've heard over and over laughing away, they go to the Grove too? Oh, you're part of the Grove too? Anybody ever? have been told that but you go there too and so this thing where that's awesome just last week the city wanted to meet with us and we sat down and they basically said this we love how you partner with the community and we believe that if there's ever a huge disaster we need you to be and I'll get these titles right we need you to be the volunteer reception center and the distribution site for a widespread emergency you need to do it this thing where, yeah, it's great. And we could sit back and go, wow, we've arrived, guys. This is awesome. But we've never arrived. We don't arrive until eternity. We're not, we haven't got to the, the pinnacle until we get to heaven. 
For some of us, that may be sooner than later, but guess what? As a church together, we haven't arrived because there are still thousands of people all around our communities that you drove from today, neighborhoods and places you came from today in Marysville and all around us from Stanwood to Tulalip to Everett to Lake Stevens and Granite Falls and Arlington, all over the place, that we're dreaming and praying and going, God, how do we reach people? That's our responsibility not to sit back and go, things are fine, things are good. Not as long as there's people going to hell. Not as long as eternity, people don't connect with who Jesus is and uh, we can't live for that. My cousin the other day told me, you know what? He goes, did you know that Snohomish County is the fastest growing county in the nation? Here's the thing, we could go, amazing, holy smokes. Some of you guys go, more traffic. <laughs> we don't need more people. Hello? But, but listen to me very, very carefully. Or we could look at it as an opportunity to reach people who are moving in. Well, I, I think to myself when I hear that, how in, how in the world, here's what I think, how can we get a group together and every time a new neighborhood is being built and every time a new home opens and you see the moving truck move in, what if we had somebody from the Grove Church with a pack and just go, hey man, how you doing? My name's Nick and I'm from the Grove Church and I don't know if you're looking for a church or not, you care. Here's some info. We would love to see you there, man, if you ever want to. Do you see that instead of going, hey, cool, we're growing a lot. Or I hate that we're growing a lot. You see the difference? It's looking through the lens of vision. How can we see lives transformed? I hate my new neighbors. I wish they never moved in. <laughs> Jesus, speak to all of them. So what are we doing? And man, I'm out of time. Darn it, Andrew. Here's what it is. We've been talking for a while, and I'm gonna go through this relatively quickly. Phase one of our renovations has been our north wing. And it used to be a Sunday school wing, and there was a big room in there, and it all looked like it was you know, 1979 all over again, that's fine. If you love orange, you would have loved that wing. <laughs> or brown, anyway. But we're, we're renovating the whole wing to make it an entire kid's space, which over doubles our square foot for kids because we've got a, a boatload of young families, and that's awesome. But we want to make a great space for kids to learn about Jesus in an environment like that. So that's been going on for, for six, almost seven months. We're looking at a grand opening date somewhere towards the end of January. We have a date down, but how many of you guys know? You never know. So that's, that's what that's going to be. After that, we're going to demo the current kid's wing because we can't just add space because we only own so much property. We're going to demo the current kid's wing and we're going to build a new auditorium and we're going to build a new lobby, expanded lobby. We're going to redo our parking and stuff like that. If you came and it was raining and you got in puddles, I'm so sorry, okay? Maybe you need a sock warmer or something. Um, but, but so we're going to redo these spaces and you go, well, how are we doing that? And the truth is this, first of all, we, we've had some money set aside and then we, we created what's called the NOW Initiative where a year and a half ago we started with the goal to raise a million dollars. And like, oh, here we go. I get it. I, I understand, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> we, I'm just being honest. So, so we, we have the, the goal to raise a million dollars. We've looked at a mortgage that we believe is affordable and, and something that we can do without having to freak out or be so close to the edge that it's stupid. We're not going to do that. So a, a level of debt, but also our north property up in Marysville. Years ago, this church, a couple decades ago, bought almost 58 acres in north Marysville with the goal to sell this and move out there and build a big facility and do all that. Well, the days that we live in, it's like, man, we would have to take on $14 million just to be, like, here's what you do, like, minimally, be about 14 million. And we basically said, we're not doing that. 
And so we're like, you know what, we're gonna sell that property and we're gonna invest every bit of what we get out of it into working on a new auditorium and working on a lobby. And, um, and so at this point, we are in contract with a developer that's gonna put some neighborhoods out there. And um, we're, we're, we think that just we're somewhere in the ballpark of six to nine months out from actually getting the money from, from that. Like I said, we're in an agreement. We've received the earnest money already. Um, we've got that in our bank that we're setting aside. Um, and, um, and so that's part of it. And then the other part, like I said, is the NOW initiative. And we've said we need to raise a million. And that can be like, oh, a million bucks. But here's the deal. Church world is notorious for the 80-20 principle. 80% of what happens is by 20% of the people. And we think, you know, maybe it could be different. Maybe everybody could be vested. Maybe everybody could be a part. And when we started the NOW initiative, it was a year and a half ago, we had about 120 people pledge. Do you know what our attendance is on a Sunday? Somewhere in the ballpark of 12 to 1,300 any given Sunday. And so I go, okay, well, we need people to jump in. And I'm not here to twist arms. I'm not here to manipulate you. I, whatever you do, you do. But I'm simply saying if we believe in the future and we want to live for something bigger than ourselves, this is part of the math. I, I'm just saying it bluntly. We won't get there if we don't raise what we need to raise because there's a big gap between what we need and where we're at. Right now we're at 440000 That is awesome, by the way. That's great. And some people have done some great generous things. Really great. But obviously if you, if you subtract four forty from a million, you get five hundred and sixty, right? And so that's where we're at. And our goal was by, by this May, six months from now, to be done. So it means, man, what about all of us? And so when we talk about all this, I, I know that, that it's like, oh boy, he brought up the money thing. I know, I get it. And then you go, so are we done then? Like if we do all this, are we done? And the simple answer is no. We're never done. Because ultimately this isn't even, it's not about a building. It's about people. It's about realizing that, that there are people that need Christ. And so I've had people ask me, when is the Grove Church gonna launch in our community? And I think that's an awesome question. Maybe I mentioned that a few minutes ago. That, that's, we're looking at some point launching campuses all over the place that eventually just become their own churches. We don't, it's not about us. But we realize that the message of Christ is something that we're called to steward together. In a book called Giving Yourself Away, Rusty Russenbach says this, you and I live in an age where only a rare minority of individuals desire to spend their lives in pursuit of objectives which are bigger than they are. And then listen to this, in our age for most people, when they die, it will be as though they never really lived. And it's not that it's our name in lights. It's not your name personally or my name personally. But for you and I, as, as I said in Christendom, our glory is too small a thing to live for. That we're here for the glory of God, to help people see him, that we are a means to others seeing who Jesus is. So here's some things I'm asking for you, and if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Talking about living beyond ourselves. First thing would be this, pray for the unchurched. If they're in your neighborhood, or they're in your family, or they're at your workplace, or they're, they're wherever you go to a gym or the grocery store, whatever it might be, pray for them. The second thing would be this, think through their lens. What I mean by that is this simple question to you personally, how can I help them see Jesus? Just think through that lens. The third thing is this, volunteer. We've said for so long we need people to get in the game We've got the volunteer tour on Sundays where you can see that it takes an army every Sunday to do what we do. The Grove Culture Class, coming to that and just kind of realizing the why a little bit behind what we do and why our culture as a church is what it is. The fourth one is this, and some of you guys are gonna squirm a little bit, and I'm super glad. The fourth thing is this, consider moving services. 
The reason is because this. Most visitors attend the easiest service to attend. Does that, that make sense? Which typically is the 945 or the 11. And so I'm asking, would you be willing, would you consider, would you pray, would you think about moving to the 830? Because we have more room in that service. And if you move, it opens up space. Would you consider looking at the 1215? And I know you go, Seahawks though. <laughs> or whatever your reason is. I get it. I DVR it every week. I do the DVR thing. But would you consider moving to the 830 or the 1215 to open up space in here? Typically, guests don't like to come to something that's overly full when you don't know people. You understand what I'm saying? And so we need empty seats during optimal times. And that would be the 945 and the 11. So consider moving services. And then five, and I already mentioned it, but, but all of us giving sacrificially. And I get it because I am, I'm not saying you. I'm saying all of us giving sacrificially. As, as a church, when the person comes up at the end and we say, hey, we're going to collect the tithes and offerings, just briefly, if you're not aware of what that means, when we say tithe, the Bible talks about setting aside of some of your income to advance the kingdom and giving it so that we can steward. Some of you guys, well, and we, people ask this before, well, doesn't the church get money from the government to do what you do? Not a penny. I mean, sure, we'll wait, I guess, but no, we don't get any. We, we, we exist and do what we do because we're vested, but typically in church world, it's 20%. Can you imagine if it were different than that? Again, I'm not gonna manipulate you, but I just want you to realize when we talk about the tithe, it's setting aside a sum of your income and, and giving it to the church to do what we're able to do as a church together. And then we say offering, we're gonna collect the tithes and offerings. Offerings is, is above and beyond what the tithe is. And you see it in the scriptures in Old Testament and New, the generous giving of people. And so when we talk about a now initiative or we talk about giving to missions or hey, we're gonna fight hunger and let's everybody give, that's what that's about. So I'll just explain that to you. And um, I know uh, somebody's gonna come up and, and make a transition, but I just wanna pray. Um, I am excited about our future. I, I know that maybe I get passionate. I talk really fast and I'm really sweaty. So when you hug me in the lobby, just bear with me. But anyway, God, today, I really believe that our future is great. I, I, it's been so humbling to know that you, you've done some pretty amazing things with us as a church together and, and, and not me or not that team or this small group. It's, it's really all of us. That God, when we set up a, a giant tent to have a big carnival in, that's not me and a couple other people. That's a whole group of people. That for Grove Kids every week, a hundred volunteers to make that happen. People out in the parking lot getting wet even today trying to help cars get in and out and deal with the puddles and all of it. It's a mess, God. But Lord, it takes so many. But ultimately, God, when we look at all that happens on a Sunday and throughout the week, that God, it's a mission that's bigger than ourselves. It's a passion that's greater than we are. It's a movement, God, that, that we believe doesn't have to have an end until eternity because I pray that none of us would be satisfied with people not knowing Jesus Christ. I pray that we would never be satisfied with a world that just exists outside of who we are and that our passion is for them to realize God loves them so much, cares about them enough to send Jesus to the cross, that that's where we find forgiveness for all the things we've done wrong. God, we want people to realize it. And we want to look through a lens of not what's in it for me, but man, what can I do to help move this thing forward? What can I do to, to see communities transformed that I'm a part of? God, grow our lives, grow our hearts, help us have a deeper impact than just ourselves. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Podcast. If you want to keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook or sign up for our e-newsletter at grove.church.